welcome back everyone welcome to another session episode of left of dial this is gonna be just a one-on-one interview that i had with colin dodson who is a candidate here in urbana illinois a reminder that the municipal general election here and as well as in champaign county is on tuesday this tuesday april 6th for information about voting the candidates city council mayor those types of you know those types of local politics elections you can go to the champaign county clerk website champaign county clerk all one word dot com you can also go to the league of women's voters i'll put all that information in the details b- below that you can find below as well as some other things i'll put down there that i find interesting and think people should know about yes so i interviewed Colin dodson who is running in urbana ward 2 he is running in the party of socialism and liberation we talked about that things such as defund the police who is part of the uh, people city council meetings i'll try to f- hopefully find some links to those that you could also watch if you're interested but enough of me talking let's go to my interview with colin dodson city council candidate for the party of socialism and liberation in war two of urbana I am speaking with Colin Dotson, who is running for city council in the city of Urbana in Ward 2. Colin, my first question is, and I usually ask this to anyone who comes on my show who runs for any kind of public office, is first off, what made you want to run for city council? The, I guess the main thing is a lot of the relationships that, taking a step back here, running with the Party for Socialism and Liberation, and In the summer of 2020, we were quite active in the uprisings against police brutality and for racial justice, while at the same time organizing to cancel rents as well as banning utility shutoffs during the pandemic. And through that process, you know, we made a number, we built a number of pretty strong relationships with other community organizations and individuals who were also showing up. And all of us basically kind of committed to, regardless what happens, we're going to keep organizing and pushing. And, you know, late last summer, when the Urbana City Council voted to reappoint Police Chief Serafin, really about that point that as part of the Champaign County Anti-Racist Coalition, which the PSL alongside Black Students for Revolution, Hitton Homeboy, that's Justin Michael Hendricks, the People's Mayor of Champaign-Urbana, your write-in candidate for Champaign District 3, Rita Connerly, and countless others, basically made the commitment that if City Council is not going to, the current City Council is not going to hold police accountable, if they're not going to make the changes that are necessary for racial justice to meet the people's needs and generally do what they're supposed to do to represent you know, us, the community of Urbana and Champaign, then we were going to run and we were going to win as many seats as we can so we can make that change. So really, that's the most direct answer I have. Also, as a slight side note, we can step back and do a brief introduction, like a sort of who are you? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, go ahead. If there's anything about your background, anything about if you want to talk about how long you've lived in Urbana, anything, go ahead. So my name is Colin Dodson. My pronouns are they, them. I am non-binary, but don't tend to make a, a huge deal about that. I've lived in Urbana since 
2008 off and on, and I've lived in Ward 2 for close to a decade. In that time, I've, for the most part, been working at Common Ground Food Co-op, first as a grocery stocker, then in IT and administration, where I still work today. I've served on the board of directors of the Independent Media Center, as well as its executive committee as vice president. And I've also served as the first community elected director from staff onto the Common Ground Food Co-op Board of Directors. Between that and organizing in the streets against war, for racial justice, and generally for the interests of the working class, I feel that I have seen kind of both sides of the table, so to speak, whether it's, you know, in a board setting or in the streets, I've been there. What would be some of the top issues main that have been very, obviously, justice reform or holding, I guess, even police accountable for what they've done, but um, are there any other issues or uh, topics that have been very pertinent or uh, important for, you know, that you want people to know about your candidacy and your campaign for city council? For sure. Um, The two largest issues, the most pertinent that have come up over the last year or so throughout 2020 and, you know, continuing into 2021 have been around racial justice and police accountability on the one hand and the fundamental economic needs of working people. And, you know, by working people, I don't just mean people who have jobs and work. I mean, basically everyone who doesn't own a corporation or like rent out properties to a dozen tenants or more, right? I'm talking about like everyday people, the residents of Urbana. And by that, primarily we're looking at housing security and preventing utility shutoffs. Uh, Namely, due to the federal and state government's totally lackluster performance in managing a response to COVID-19 throughout 2020, you know, tens of millions of of Americans are out of work. And Urbana is affected by that just as much as anywhere else in the country. You know, there are a lot of people here locally who don't have a job anymore, who don't have income coming in. And unemployment benefits have largely expired, right? Mm, So, you know, the eviction moratoria that we've seen have kind of been a patchwork between federal and state statutes. Um, they're not really complete enough. Many of them are, are means tested, you know, you have to file paperwork and that's, that's a hurdle. And in the time that it takes you to file that paperwork, the county sheriff could very well be at your front door kicking you out of your home, right? In the middle of a major public health crisis. And the thing is that even without that, just preventing evictions isn't enough. We have to cancel that rent debt. We have to cancel mortgage debt because there's no way for working people to make up the past year and change of time that they haven't been able to work. So we're never going to have the money to pay it back. And if all we do is prevent the evictions themselves, then once those come due, we're still not going to have the money and the evictions are still going to happen. Mm. And I understand that that's not necessarily an issue that the city has a tremendous amount of control over, but the city does have some influence over utility shutoffs. And the, the example that I want to point to is in Geneva, New York, where a member of the Party for Socialism and Liberation won a city council seat. This was probably a year or two ago, probably a little longer than that, two or three years ago. 
but they were on the city council when the COVID-19 pandemic hit. And since then, they were able to lead a push and get support from the rest of the council to implement an indefinite ban on utility shutoffs for non-payment because no one should ever have to go without power or heat or water. So that to me says that this is possible. It's something that we can do. The conditions may be different. It may be more difficult to achieve in Urbana than Geneva, New York, but it's not beyond the realm of possibility. And at this point, it's a necessity. So between that and bolstering police accountability, addressing racial injustice, and increasing the transparency of Urbana city government, and generally making the city government more accessible to the people of Urbana. And I, I don't mean just increasing the public comment time limit. I mean, the, the people of Urbana need to be able to have an ongoing dialogue and conversation with the city council in full view of, of the public. And that doesn't and can't happen with just public comment at the beginning of a meeting. You know, I've talked to uh, Clarissa Nickerson Foreman, who is a member of the C- city council in Champaign, but but, you know, obviously, you know her, Colin, because she's taken part in the People's City Council. And, uh, you know, I kind of talked about how her about, you know, utilities, you know, companies like Ameren and American Water. And she kind of talked about how, yeah, you know, they've been able to get some work done and making them ease off on utilities and sh- shutting off utilities for their constituents. And as city council, the people that you represent, they use, they use these companies and they may not m- have much of a voice or Ameren probably won't respond to them at least as fast as say city council so if you're that representation or that city council you get more of a voice to your constituents than they have and when you're in a situation like this right now with the pandemic you can really be more of a voice for your constituents when like these as you said colin with these shutoffs that are really affect you know affecting people and can really make life difficult because you know how do you live without electricity how do you how do you live without gas how do you live without water especially without water you know during a pandemic where you need to be able to wash your hands and bathe cook food etc so yeah you would yeah if you wanted to you know i think this is an area that's like arguably one of the most overlooked areas of what you know local government can do city councils and like is that you know we know that city council determines the ordinances and, you know, the resolutions and statements, commitments of the city government. But the the city also has a certain clout within political systems and when it comes to relating with utility companies, which, I mean, in my view, should not be private in the first place. You know, they should not be run for profit. But yeah, you're absolutely right. We can advocate for the residents of Urbana with the utility companies, Ameren and American Water. The one difference I would say is that from what I have seen from report backs to city council meetings that I've observed is it appears to me that city administration is asking, right? They're they're bringing the question to Ameren and to American Water. You know, have you shut people off? What's going on? And just kind of taking at face value what they respond with, which is actually their outright PR departments, you know, the where, you know, I do think that there comes a point, and I think we're there, where as city government, we have to stop asking 
and start demanding. And to kind of to kind of go back to the People City Council meetings, they had three meetings, so three events on I think three topics. Right, there was the the title of it was defunding the police, which I want to make it clear not everyone that took part in that meeting exactly agreed with defunding the police. That was the kind of issue or subject on whether or not there is closing gaps in domestic violence. What was the other one, Colin, if you remember? For sure. So the three People's Council events were, the first one was ending chronic homelessness in okay. Champaign-Urbana, yeah. then defund, defunding the police, and then closing the gaps in support for domestic violence survivors. Okay. Maybe we'll start with the housing, affordable housing. Um, what would be your, how do you feel about the city council should go about with affordable housing or because obviously there's not one per, there's not going to be one course with local government there's not going to be one perfect solution or ordinance or legislation but and it's going to be a work in progress obviously but how would you go about at least starting even just address affordable housing and even that in a way is a start just addressing that and i think that, uh, this is something again that clarissa nickerson foreman said that even just addressing that there's a big issue with homelessness and, and unfortunately in these in these times of pandemic of covid 19 it's making a lot of problems that were bad enough before even much worse so what would be your way of at least starting to address issues of affordable housing if elected in city council? Absolutely. So I think a really good point was raised during that People's Council event in that, like you said, there is no one-size-fits-all solution. So a lot of what needs to be done will involve working directly with folks who don't have housing or folks who are at imminent risk of losing their housing. The other thing is there's a common point that's usually brought up against quote unquote radicals like myself, which is like, well, you know, there are already people working on issues in the community. You should find where they are and support them. Right. And that's a really good point. I would go a step further. I would say that the first step would be to conduct a thorough roundup of all resources that exist in the community. And then, I mean, I'm using this metaphorically given that we're in a pandemic right now, but we need to get representatives from all of these organizations and community initiatives into the same room, talking with each other and developing a comprehensive plan from the experience of all the people who are doing work on this right now. In a more like, in terms of what I think solutions could look like, there are, there are two aspects here, right? So there's the immediate existential aspect, which is that there are people who are right now, you know, just this last week, freezing on the street, you know, sleeping in the cold. And even though the weather's warmed up some, like they should still have a roof over their head as soon as possible. And the thing is, I know that the Urbana City Council has been talking about, oh, we're working on getting an emergency shelter up and running, which Urbana used to have. But I would say we need to kick that into high gear and we need to treat it like the existential priority that it is. The other side of it is that addressing homelessness as a societal issue means more than just emergency shelters. Mm -hmm. You know, we need stable permanent housing. And the good news is it already exists, right? Even by the highest estimates, these are not the HUD numbers, which are, I want to say approximately 150 
homeless people by point in time count, but the more accurate estimate is closer to about 500, potentially that high. Even so, the number of vacant housing units in Champaign-Urbana is close to 2,000. Mm. So habitable spaces that are designed for people to live in already exist in abundance. Mm. So that's where I would say for the sort of second half of this, we can look at what does a plan look like that can take houseless people and put them into people-less houses or people-less housing, apartment units, houses, as appropriately as, as we can, identifying what the particular needs are, you know, and disability is commonly overlooked, right? Institutional, mm. like systemic ableism is far too prevalent. That's another example of like an intersection that we need to be very mindful of and ensure that we're paying attention to accessibility as well as, you know, this ties into supports for domestic violence survivors, right? I mean, in the first place, the overwhelming majority of calls to the police are for domestic violence issues and the majority of domestic violence calls are related to rent. Mm, yeah. So to me, the goal should be realistically guaranteeing a fundamental right to housing. And so there are, of course, many ways to go about it. That's just a few ideas I'm pointing to. You know, it would also be helpful to look at other places in the country that have done good work here. You know, Rockford, Illinois has ended chronic homelessness and, you know, they've identified permanent housing supports and, you they're able to guarantee housing for the people of Rockford. And there's no reason that we can't do the same thing here. And I guess if you wanted to kind of just follow up, I know, yes, there are shelters, but and I, and I talked about this with Deborah Liu. Shelters are kind of the, they're the short-term solution to this, where they're definitely not only solution and definitely not what should be the long-term solution, which is, yeah, finding affordable housing for that the person that is in need. And if I may, there, the other aspect of this too is, you know, as it stands, there's still a statewide ban on rent control in Illinois. Mm, and yes, yes. yeah, and, and I know that the Lift the Ban Coalition has been doing good work towards raising this, this issue and trying to pressure state government. But I would say, I think that these efforts would be much stronger if, again, coming back to like the advocacy role of local government, if the city of Urbana backed up those demands and those calls. And I think that there's good ground to do it in that municipalities should not be restricted by the state government from, you know, implementing housing policies for the benefit of their residents, of their community members, as they see fit. Why is it that our locally democratically elected officials cannot implement rent control measures based on the local democratic process, but are restricted by the state government from doing so? To kind of transition to the other people sitting council, and we already kind of talked about that, but, you know, in terms of closing, you know, the gap in domestic violence. Why was this picked for the People's City Council as a topic? Was this the people who participated in it wanted in it? I'm just curious uh, how these subjects got picked. I mean, to me, there are very deep connections between all three of the issues raised at People's Councils. And ultimately, I don't think that the initiative of the People's Council, we would have sold our so ourselves short if we didn't take up each of those issues. In, in the sense that, you know, again, if we're talking about like defunding or reforming or however you want to frame it, the police and in improving police accountability, you know, there are two sides to this. I know 
this will make some folks very uncomfortable for me, to, for me to mention, but police are the most likely to be abusers, to have a history of domestic violence, right? So that's on, on one side of this. On the other is, again, you know, the number one call for police in Champaign-Urbana, in both Champaign and Urbana, both individually and collectively, is four cases of domestic violence of domestic cases. And then tying back to housing security, maybe not specifically homelessness, but actually, yes, homelessness, is that again, of those domestic violence cases, the majority of those cases are over ultimately financial stress related to housing that is paying rent. Yeah, so yeah, it does seem like, yeah, yeah, as you look at these issues and, you know, if you listen to all the meetings, you'll notice that, wow, these, yeah, all these issues do seem to kind of connected, especially when, you know, with housing, it's like, well, if a person is in a tough position and they're being if they're in a bad relationship whatever it may be if they're you know an abusive relationship that's and they and they can't leave because the partner pays the rent well those are connected when it comes to police you know why are the police being called well is it because of a domestic yeah as you said it might be because of a domestic issue disturbance so yeah it definitely assumes like that these are all interconnected in the kind of, I was pretty interested in what was said at the closing the gaps in domestic violence because obviously I think it was mostly male men. So with this issue, I, it's hard for men, or maybe it's kind. Of, it's unless if you've experienced it, you know. I don't want to say that can't talk about it, but as you said, you're not the most qualified. You're definitely not the most qualified person to talk about it if you're a man or if you're a man who. I mean, not to say that men can't can't be in abusive relationships. I know there's. It's but it's more often than not usually women. You talked about I wanted and this is what I'm trying to get to um is about ending this or somebody brought this up in that is there is this stigma about essentially or coming out and saying that, you know, say a woman is in an abusive relationship, there is a stigma on talking about it. There's a risk on just speaking out because that might es unfortunately that might escalate the the abuse. There is a stigma on speak speaking about for a let's say a woman and just speak out on her abuse because that could escalate the situation. And I should probably give a warning to our listeners about this subject because I know it can be very difficult to hear about if you've experienced it. Um, it could be triggering. But that's definitely it, warranted. Yeah. But it's such a, you know, it's, you know, you know, as they say, the first step to, you know, the first step to solid problem is identifying that there is a problem and that can go a long way. So curious if you kind of want to recount and a little bit of what you said about that meeting about talking about domestic abuse and violence and how on confronting it and addressing it. Um, if you wanted to talk about that, Colin. For sure. Like, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's been a while since the event, so I don't remember exactly what all I said. You know, I will, I will say again, full disclaimer, I am not the most qualified to speak on this subject. I have very limited experience here, which is to say that there's kind of a fine edge to walk here, which is that we do have to talk about this publicly because we have to break down that, that resistance, the taboo on talking about domestic violence as an issue publicly. And, you know, I'm not trying to be dramatic in saying this here, but it is a life or death issue when it comes down to it. And, you know, when people's lives and safety are on the line, it, it's important that we're able to address that. And given how common of an issue domestic violence is, we're talking, um, I always forget which direction
direction the statistic goes that, what is it, 40% of police are reported perpetrators of domestic violence, or that 40% of, I believe the first, that first way is the way that statistic runs. And that's reported cases. But you know, that 40% number is huge. And the fact that it makes up the overwhelming majority of police calls is also huge. So that to me suggests that this is not some individual problem or moral failing with any one or another perpetrator of domestic violence. And I mean, don't get me wrong, like for that kind of behavior, people do need to face consequences. But my point is that this to me suggests that there is an underlying systemic problem. And that's what we need to get to the root of. Dig that out and correct it and, you know, ultimately heal our society and all survivors. What I will say is that given my own lack of experience and with respect to this subject, the, the fine line that I'm talking about is that I think it is really important to talk about it. And that's why I'm not necessarily going to stop. But that I also, first of all, need to acknowledge that this is a triggering subject and that it, it is not just going to make people uncomfortable, but but it can also reinvoke trauma. And that's not something that I really want to be doing. It's not my place to do that for someone else. But at the same time, we have to break down these social barriers to talking about it. And then on the other side of it is that I know that I have to pay extra attention that I don't speak over survivors, right? That when someone who does have personal experience is trying to advocate, whether they're trying to correct me or just simply to speak for themselves, you know, I really do need to take a step back and shut up. I think that was kind of the, if you remember, the there was the, the Me Too movement and the Time's Up movement that started, I know, way back, was that 2017? But I think a lot of that was about listening to women and, and you know, some men who were in abuse, you know, had been dealing with this yeah, type of, whether it be abuse or harassment. I mean, I think it makes sense just to to frame it as listen to survivors. Yeah, listen to survivors. Yeah. yeah. Kind of trans or talk into about policing, because as you said, you brought up the what happened last summer. And I think, and I t- talked about this with, I think it was with Jake and I think Deborah, who were candidates for Urbana City Council, about Urbana and Champagne had some pretty big protests here about holding, you know, police reform. You want to call it defunding the police. I mean, I'm sure defunding the police was said quite a bit, you know, in their chants and at the marches. Yeah, I, what? Uh, I will say I was, I was there for a lot of it. And yes, uh, defund the police was kind of the middle position of the uh, movement, so to speak. Why do you think it was, it had such a presence and why it was so, why so many people took part in it? I'm just kind of curious to get your, why do you think it was such a big here and well, even in Champaign, but I think even in Urbana, it kind of got a lot of people out, it got a lot of people out. People wanted the, they wanted the protest. They wanted to get in. Yeah. I mean, for sure, we had a couple of demonstrations that were well over a thousand people each, to the point where I don't know how many people it was, but the crowd was huge. As far as like, so I think it's pretty common knowledge at this point that the inciting incident in this case was the police murder of George Floyd in Minnesota. And, you know, the the thing is that we see this kind of cycle with respect to uprisings against police brutality or police terror that come up time and time and time again. We saw it with Trayvon Martin. We saw it all the way back with Rodney King. And, you know, I think the confluence of even without 
the COVID-19 pandemic, I think we would have seen a sizable movement, maybe not as big as it was. I do think to some, to some extent, the COVID-19 pandemic further amplified the, the movement this time. I kind of, uh, for one, people are already kind of stressed out and overwhelmed at this lockdown measures and, and everything. We're, we're still a relatively new thing around May and June last year. Mm, yeah. Uh, and so a lot of people were already pretty frustrated at this rapid and sudden change in everyone's lives. We were already starting to see a lot of people losing their work, uh, a lot of layoffs and firings, downsizing, whatever, as well as, you know, a lot of folks spending a, a bit more time at home and paying closer attention to what's going on. Yeah. So, you know, I think all of these things kind of compounded and boosted the the reach and the scale of this particular uprising. And kind of transitioning, well, we'll sort of keep on the subject in terms of police, because I think that the whole um, justice reform, keeping police, you would say you're not exactly, you're not just for justice reform, but you would go even further than that when it comes to how police, with how heals with maybe when there are situations with, with police, when they maybe overstepped their boundaries or overstepped their maybe went over the line i guess you would say this is glad you asked this is a question that i could probably go on and on about depending on the level of detail you wanted to get into if we wanted to talk historically the origin and the role of police and and all of that stuff i think at at this moment in history strategically and morally defund the police needs to be the rallying cry and you know ultimately my rationale for that is you know if we look at what was it about 30 years ago the rodney king case yeah that was about that was that was nine i think nine i think that was the 90s yeah in los Los angeles right yeah yeah so looking all the way back to the rodney king case we saw i mean i was too young right like i was probably one or two years old when that happened but Mm. even going back that far which you know i know is not that far back but you know in, in human experience 30 years is a long time so we've had these these kind of uprisings and popular movements ebb and flow since that time particular inciting incidents whether it was trayvon martin or george floyd brianna taylor rodney king far too many the main thing i think here is that we started and i i'm using we loosely but I mean, like movements for racial justice and, you know, started with demands for reform, for better police accountability, for de-escalation, bias training, and all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, every time that the movement has shifted towards reform the police, reform the police, the only thing that that's resulted in for the past 30 years is an increase in police funding. Mm-hmm. And no tangible improvement in police accountability or honestly justice. At this point, qualified immunity is the law of the land, essentially all across the country. That legally speaking, police are not bound to the law. They can literally get away with murder. So just looking at what we've seen, countless people killed and brutalized over the last 30 years, regardless of body cams, regardless of bias training, regardless of de-escalation you know, policies. And I'm not saying we don't do those things. We should definitely still have these measures in place and we should push for them. But at the rate that police budgets 
have increased over the last 30 years. I mean, the military industrial complex and militarization of the police is a very real thing. Uh, police budgets have exploded since the 90s. And uh, well, some of that does have to do with September 11th. Uh, oh, for sure. That and, was fuel on the fire. Yeah, yeah, 2000. You know. Right. And, but I mean, uh, yeah, even but... before that. And so ultimately, my point here is that with police reform, we have tried that for the past 30 years. It doesn't work. We need to make it clear, you know, my bare minimum is that, okay, if you want to talk about police reform, all right, we can frame it that way. But no more funding, not a penny more. You have more than enough resources. You have more than enough funding in police departments. In the city of Urbana, over 20% of the budget, over $11 million goes towards the police. I think there are a lot of better ways that we can spend that money. And ultimately, when it comes down to it, for most cases, police are not the right tool for the job. Not if we're talking about the well-being and the needs of people. And this kind of goes back again about if somebody is having, I believe it's also another example of this, which I think I want to give credit, Jake or Jay Fava, sorry if I'm misremembering his name, about what happened in Colorado, where instead of, they're not sending police officers for any kind of, for if someone's having a, a mental crisis or any kind of situation that they're using social workers or more uh, EMTs, I think, paramedic, changed it to where in certain, certain emergencies, they're not sending police first. That's not their first answer to some uh, emergency calls, I believe. So. so that's kind of more of a direction you would take. Yeah. And you know, the, any like specific plan that's going to require the collaboration of the community of Urbana and the city council to actually implement. And I know that the kind of attitude and direction I'm taking in here is probably not going to win me a lot of friends out of the gate. I know among city council members, at least the ones now, defund the police is not a particularly popular uh, rallying cry. Especially in Champaign, as Clarissa, Clarissa, you know, bringing up her again, but Clarissa Nicholson Foreman said, yeah, this is not going to, where, where I live in Champaign, that's not going to probably win you, in Champaign anyways, that's going to be, at, at the very least, a challenge, if not something that could potentially be the reason why you don't win your campaign in Champaign. Or she did say that, you know, Urbana is more progressive in Champaign and... Let me ask you this, uh, Colin. Have you talked, you know, when you've camp been able to campaign, obviously it's a bit difficult with COVID as it's made pretty much everything more difficult in our, <laughs> in our lives, especially when you campaigned, what was that experience like? Did you talk with your constituents? Did you talk with what, what was on their mind? What, what, what would be important to them? How things could change in city council? Or yeah, I mean, we've, I say we because, you know, my campaign is not really about me. You know, it's about the residents of Urbana. And, you know, in my mind, this is a PSLCU campaign. You know, you're not just voting for me. You're voting for the Party for Socialism and Liberation, Champaign-Urbana. This is something that we have been kind of struggling with, trying to find, you know, the right ways to engage with um you know, the people of Ward 2. Unfortunately, much of my own, like, you know, talking with people and stuff has kind of been limited to my workplace and to, like, a couple of close neighbors. You know, we are trying things like community town halls 
So far, the attendance has not been super great, but we are looking into more like direct person-to-person outreach, and we are investing in, you know, face shields, and we're going to make sure we're double masking and, you know, hand sanitizer and everything that we can to stay safe, to keep the residents of Urbana safe. So a lot of our, like, outreach and, like, campaigning proper, I would say, hasn't really geared up yet. What, and maybe in terms of being transparent, feel like there is a way to communicate and be transparent with, you know, if you do win at meetings with people on like, well, this is how I feel about defund the police. Are you hoping that there's a way that people will listen to you and maybe at least come to an understanding? They may not. So when you say defund the police and they're like, oh my goodness, this is way too radical, way too extreme. Are you hoping to able to at least come to like a bridging point where, or a some way to reach out and say, well, this is what I mean, and maybe come to at least some understanding of what exactly you mean, because it seems like they just, for people that, I mean, I guess it, it comes down to, are they willing to listen to those people? Are they willing to listen to what you say and, and mean? Oh, but, yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That is, I mean, that's the ideal outcome, right? And to be clear, like, ordinarily, when I'm, when I have, so I guess I'm kind of drawing a line here between petitioning and campaigning. You know, we did do quite a bit of outreach, gathering our petition signatures to get on the ballot back in, what was that, uh, November? Uh, November, December, I think somewhere around then for the general election. And to be clear, like I don't, when I'm talking with folks that I don't necessarily know where they're coming from, I don't necessarily start by saying defund the police, but I try to make a point to get there, if you know what I mean. And it's not that I'm trying to hide my positions or anything, but it's that I know that there's often that kind of immediate snap response to defund the police, you know, as though that means that we're just going to fire all of the police officers all at once and just not have anything to replace it, which is, you know, not what we're trying to do. You know, we're not trying to burn everything down, right? So I usually frame it as that I think that the Urbana Police Department is overfunded and that some of their resources really should be reallocated to areas that would directly benefit the people of Urbana. You also raised an interesting point about like their defund the police can mean a lot of different things, which is interesting because that in Mayor Marlin's campaign materials, that was her kind of positioning to justify, I don't support defund the police, right? Kind of coming to a more center, like liberal center position of, we need to reform the police. And then, all right, that's good. You know, I'll acknowledge that like, at least there's an acknowledgement there that there is a problem, even if it's implicit. But I would contend that like, well, police reform also can mean a lot of different things. But there's, again, one thing it has always meant, and it has always meant an increase in funding. And that was even talk about national, go back to the last election, 2020. Democrats, they did win the White House, you know, Joe Biden became president, but they didn't do too well at the House of Representatives. And there was kind of leaks of talks from Democratic uh, Congress people, and they got very angry with, I guess you would say the progressives, and they told them, stop saying socialism. They said, stop saying defund the police. And it's kind of hard, very difficult totally do a diagnosis you know dissect the whole results of the you know 2020 election because there are some cases where in georgia which the democrats well they they won in georgia well the presidency i i, I couldn't exactly say but uh, a lot of 
people to register, you know, people, you know, voter registration for Democrats in Georgia. And a lot of that was because of what happened, you know, the Black Lives Matter marches. They were very big in some of those cities where, so it's, you know, you can't exactly come up, you know, here's the thing about politics. Nobody's going to have the exact 100% right answer. <laughs> uh, I know for that's sure. hard. I know that's hard for, you know, our, you know, for media, for, you know, our news networks. Yeah, but there was this really kind of pushback from, Demo- you know, national, the co- congressional level, even, as you said, Colin, against defunding the police because they thought that hurt them when it's not, exa- you know, you can't really say ex- that exact hurt them. And we could be here all night to talk about, be here all week, honestly, to talk <laughs> about what went right and what went wrong for Democrats. But yeah, there was this, what, what I'm trying to say is there was this pushback against, you know, defund the police from Democrats even. I mean, I'd say I'm, I'm not terribly surprised. You know, there's a reason I'm not part of the Democratic Party. I don't buy into Democratic Party politics. Ultimately, I'm in the PSL because the PSL is a socialist party, because we are a progressive party that fights for the liberation of all people that is independent from, you know, as you mentioned earlier, I know there are some connotations I don't want to get into around this, but the quote unquote Democratic Party machine, right? Mm, Yeah. If anything, I'd say that it's kind of the other way around in a sense the prevalence of calls to defund the police in a sense kind of hurts mainstream established Democrats for the reason that they're unwilling to go that far in their position because it draws that that highlight, that distinction. And I think this is sort of a fundamental difference between like a very liberal approach. And by that, I mean like classical liberalism, neoliberalism, that whole family of like ideology versus where we're coming from in the PSL is there's this tendency to try to cover up distinction and contradiction and all this sort of stuff from a more liberal or like big D democratic position. Whereas, you know, to us as socialists, contradictions need to be identified. We need to bring attention to them. Otherwise, they're never going to be resolved. And to us, that means that it's important to stand up for, in this case, where the kind of movement is, where the progressive demand is with respect to police is to defund the police. On the long arc of history, to be clear, I'm not talking like the next 10 years. I'm talking like hopefully we'll get there in like the year 100 or 150 years. Who knows, Mm -hmm. right? But the, the long-term goal is to abolish the police, to develop society in a direction that does not need police. But that's not what we're trying to do right now. And I, I think it is important to make that clear. I think there's, in for a lot of people, kind of tend to mix up police abolition with defunding the police from this idea that like defund the police means defund the police all the way. Now, you know, <laughs> rough estimate, if I could, I would love to cut the police budget in half or more. But, you know, I'm suspecting that that's probably just a starting bargaining position. And if that walks back to 25%, I'll take it. But I mean, the thing is, I think what it comes down to is that so many within Democratic Party establishment, especially at the national level, are not prepared to take genuinely progressive positions. They have too many donations on the line. They have too many endorsements on the line. They have too much corporate backing on the line. Because in the U.S., bribery and corruption is illegal and institutionalized, whereas anywhere else in the world, well, maybe not anywhere else in the world, but most of the rest of the world, that's called bribery and corruption 
and it's a crime. I think I only have a few things. I, I You're running in District 2 of Urbana. What can you tell me about your district? terms of what makes it unique i don't i don't don't try to like tell me like exactly where it starts or where the you know the whole uh, i mean people if people want to know they can if you live in urbana and you are a registered voter you can look up i believe the champaign county clerk website i know the city of urbana website too has a thing where you can look up in which district you live in etc so there are you can go to the Champaign County Clerk website, Champaign, I believe it's champaigncountyclerk.com. It's all one word. They could look that up and see where they live, if you live in Urbana or Champaign or where, wherever you live in uh, sure. Champaign County. But what? But anyways, my, to kind of get back to the question, um, Colin, what about your district would you say makes it unique or distinct? There's anything about it that, that comes to your mind about it that maybe you'd For want to... Sure. Yeah, I mean, I guess the the most immediate thing that jumps out kind of demographically is that Ward 2 is a very mixed ward between university students and longtime permanent residents of Urbana. And, you know, I I don't want to, like, suggest that there's some fundamental difference between the two other than students are more likely to be, you know, in in the community for a couple of years and maybe a handful will stick around, right? But I mean, there, there is a difference in, in like perspectives and generally speaking, political outlook and attitude and stuff like that. In general, War Two I found is pretty progressive, kind of regardless of age or whether students uh, are also sure. community yeah. members. Yeah. <laughs> but whether, you know, whether somebody has lived here for 20 years or whether they're a student who's here for three, four, five years, they're still community members. But they definitely bring different perspectives. You know, as well, Ward 2 is also pretty well mixed between houses and uh, apartment units. So there's a decent amount of medium density housing within Ward 2, but then we also have entire neighborhoods of I guess technically you'd call them single family houses or homes for, you know, blocks and blocks and blocks. So I think that kind of blend of university and town, town and gown, as they used to say, I guess they still say. Yeah, so I think that does make it interesting because in approaching a political conversation, I figure the content is probably going to be about the same, but the approach might be a little bit different between whether I think somebody's more likely to be a, a student versus like a long-term urbanic resident. I know I'm repeating myself a lot, but... Colin, I guess, is there anything else, is there anything about your campaign or candidacy that you, or anything about city council about elections? Because again, p- people who are listening, if you live in Urbana and you are able to vote, you know, 18 citizen and you're registered to vote, you can, I think, go to Champaign County Clerk website. And I think there's a way you can, um, the, I, but I know, check your registration, your status. And polling place and uh, yeah. early voting and all of that information is on the county clerk's website. The official election date is April 6th. And that's, for, a, tu- and that's a Tuesday, just letting yep. people know. Yeah. Tuesday, April 6th. That's the last day you can vote for the Urbana Consolidated General Election. I believe the Champaign Consolidated General is on the same day. And if you want to learn more about my campaign, you can find our campaign page on Facebook at facebook.com slash capital C-O-L-I-N 
capital D, capital F-O-R, capital C-O-U-N-C-I-L. That's Colin D for council. That's Colin D for council. And then our, you can find our campaign website at colinforcouncil.org. That's C-O-L-I-N-F-O-R council.org. If you'd like to volunteer for the campaign or sign up for our email list to get more information, both of those links can be found on our website. And uh, Colin, I guess my, kind of my last question is, and this is kind of me giving you, if you wanted to give a pitch to somebody listening and maybe they're, they've never... They don't pay attention to city council or they're kind of, they don't maybe ha- have had time to you know listen to, to what's going on. They don't read the newspaper. They don't keep up to date. Like some of us activists, people, if you want to kind of give them a pitch on like why they should care and, you know, why they should vote in, in this upcoming general election. Yeah. I mean, the Urbana City Council is a powerful platform for advocacy with respect to everything from utility companies to the state government. As well, the city council determines city ordinances and resolutions can issue block grants, such as the block grant issued to First Followers, which is fantastic for their re-entry program. At the same time, city council also determines the budgets and financial priorities of the city, which is everything from assessing the cost of fees for city services, parking passes, fines, as well as what gets priority in in city spending, whether that's the police department or whether that's building safety or any number of other departments within the city. And ultimately, these affect everything from infrastructure, the quality of the streets, uh, historic preservation, the character of our neighborhoods, as well as it has an impact on housing justice, economic justice, criminal justice, and the quality of life for all Urbana residents. So this campaign isn't just about Ward 2, it's about the entirety of Urbana. And if we do our jobs well, we can set an example for the rest of the country. So show up April 6th and vote. Right. I think that's a good good place to end this interview, this discussion. Thank you so much, Colin, for coming on and uh, talking about your candidacy. I, I hope people listening get a lot from it, le- learn a lot, and I hope uh, they are eligible to vote in Urbana or even you know other parts, hopefully other parts of whether it be Champaign County, you know, they pay more attention to their local their local government, their city, people who represent them. Thank you so much, Colin, for coming on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and thank you so much for having me. It, it is a, a real privilege, you know, to have access to a platform like this and, you know, to have the opportunity to talk with you. Yeah, yeah. We really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully, I mean, whether or not, whatever happens April 6th, please feel free to come back on because I know you'll still be doing activism and you'll still be on the ground happening you know here in urbana and and even champagne yeah the work never stops yeah it never does it's always it's always ongoing the yeah well thanks so much thanks so much colin i yeah yeah, really appreciate it thank you ben